0: We're reading Psalm 141. Psalm 141. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity and let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant as when one plows and breaks up the earth. So shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Thus ends God's word.
1: Heavenly Father, we pause now to not only ask for your help this morning to hear and understand and obey your word, but... Lord, also, as we prayed last Sunday evening at our prayer meeting, we we pray for our nation this week. And we do ask that on Tuesday, as we go to the polls, that you would bring men and women of righteousness into office. We pray for a peaceful transition of power. We thank you for the Unbelievable security and safety that we enjoy in this country because of your kindness when we go to vote. I pray that you would help us to vote according to conscience and not according to popularity or emotion. And I ask that whoever you raise up on Wednesday morning, for there is no authority in this earth except that which has been established by you, Lord, that we would support them and honor them and respect them, whether or not we voted for them, because you stand behind them in a way that we do not fully understand, but in a way that we submit to through our prayers and through our honor. Have mercy on our country, Lord. Raise up men and women of righteousness, we pray. And Lord, help us now. Help us now to, through the power of your word, become men and women of righteousness. Would you guard us as a church from sitting in judgment over the world while we neglect the condition of our own soul or our own heart? I pray that we would devote more attention to examining holiness on the inside than we do to decrying unholiness around us. That you might be honored by the priority we place and the emphasis we give to walking before you, God, in righteousness. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Real war is a tremendously painful thing. And, and that is not something that is easy to imagine if, if your only experience of military combat is playing video games on your couch. A few years ago, I had the privilege of sitting down with a, a special forces officer in the United States Army who had completed several tours of duty in the Middle East. Uh, he was also a Christian. And the firsthand accounts that, that he gave me were horrifying. Church, the kind of, of stuff that makes you sick to your stomach. So he told stories of shoulder-fired rockets (laughs) that begin to pierce the walls of the vehicle that he is in, causing men around him to explode in front of his eyes. There's blood everywhere, people screaming, machine guns rattling, and all the while he's trying to stay focused on the mission so that everybody his commanding officer entrusted to him doesn't die. Sometimes it seemed helpful for this gentleman to talk about it. Other times he would suddenly get very quiet. Or he would change the subject. And I imagine that that some of you have had have had similar conversations with friends or family members of your own who are veterans of the armed forces and have seen the reality of war. It's not pretty painful. And listening to him, I recognize that I I don't have a category for that kind of experience. I just, I don't have a category for that. I I don't wear bracelets to honor members of my company who have died in the line of duty. I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm not a special forces officer and unless a lot of you are hiding your identity from me, I don't think many people in this room are either. But I would argue, church, that that does not mean we are unfamiliar with combat. What do I mean by that? First Timothy six twelve: Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Romans 8:13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. As John Owen once said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And if you're not a Christian, you know nothing of this conflict, with all due respect. You don't. You're still floating downstream, carried along by the desires of your flesh, the desires of the world, the desires of the evil one. But, but if you're a Christian, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Hopefully. You know that following Jesus doesn't make your life easier. It makes it harder. Harder. For to align yourself with the kingdom of light as Victor did earlier this morning, is necessarily to align yourself against the kingdom of darkness, the darkness of sin around you, and especially the darkness of sin inside of you. And that battle, because it's a battle, that lifelong agonizing struggle to say no to sin and yes to God is tremendously painful. We haven't left our Songs of Lament series in raising this subject. Why why is this so painful? Why is temptation to sin so painful? Well, here's why. Because sin isn't just something that we do. It's something we desire. Okay? I want to retaliate with my words instead of overlooking an offense. There's, There's something in me that wants to lust after that woman instead of delighting in my wife. I want to feel sorry for myself instead of trusting the Lord. And whether you're seven or 70, to deny yourself something you want is tremendously painful. It, it really hurts. It hurts to deny yourself Take up your cross and follow Jesus. And we've spent the last two months, hard to believe but true, learning how to respond to various kinds of suffering in ways that are pleasing to God. But there's a kind of suffering we have not yet touched on and that is what I want to address this morning from Psalm 141, namely the pain of temptation to sin. And that's the sort of suffering that Psalm 141 helps us lament to the Lord. Please don't think, friend, that the Bible excises the pain of temptation from the way of lament. It's not not like God says, hey, if you are suffering from cancer or you're being persecuted for your Christian faith, then here's a song for you to sing. But if you're experiencing the pain of significant temptation to sin, well, then get your act together. He doesn't do that. No, no matter the source of our sorrow, God gives us a song to sing in the midst of our sorrow. And as I've said on several Sundays, there's a typical pattern to a psalm of lament. Lament. So we we come before God, we pour out our complaints, we declare our trust in the Lord, and we, we ask him to intervene for his glory and our good. And all four of those categories are present in Psalm 141, but the author spends the overwhelming majority of his time in category four, asking God to intervene in his pain in his suffering for his good and the Lord's Glory because he is suffering under temptation to sin. And it's painful. And I don't doubt that as you hear me say things like, when we are tempted to sin, we should pray, that many of you hear that and think, well, duh, Williams, <laughs> I know that. I mean, most of us would agree with that or at least acknowledge a little prayer couldn't hurt when we're tempted to sin. But, but here's where I think things tend to break down. Knowing what in a practical way, that prayer looks like? I mean, none of us would say, hey, you know what, when you're tempted to sin, don't don't bother with prayer, bad idea. I don't think anyone would say that, okay? But, But if we say, well, we should pray when we're tempted, what does that prayer actually look like? And how do we pray intelligently and faithfully And thoroughly and and persistently when we're suffering under the pain of temptation. That's where Psalm 141 is so very helpful. And here's the big idea of the whole psalm. It's simply this. A temptation to sin is an invitation to pray. That's it. A temptation to sin, when you see a temptation to sin coming your way, friend, here's what Psalm 141 does with that temptation. It takes and it says, that's not just a temptation to sin coming your way, that is an invitation to prayer coming your way. And in this Psalm, David, the author, lays out five of the most important requests that we can bring to the Lord in the hour of temptation. So, temptation to sin is an invitation to pray. And the first prayer is this. There are five points this morning. Here's the first Father, draw near to me. Father, draw near to me. I I wonder what you would say when you're being tempted, when you're suffering under a strong temptation to do what God says is wrong, what do you need the most? What would you think? To say, I, I think most of us would probably say, well, we need God to take the temptation away. <laughs> take it away, Lord. Or, or we need greater self-control to, to say no to sin right now and, and keep on saying no. Or, or maybe we need to call a friend and have them pray for us. Or maybe we need to read our Bible or, or go on a run or work out or, or get back in that accountability group. Are those good things? Or, or is there wisdom in, in doing some of those things? Well, yes, yes, of course. But there's something we need even more, brothers and sisters. In that hour when when temptation is coming your way and you're feeling the pain of that struggle, we need the presence of God himself. Look at verse 1. Oh, Lord, I call upon you. Hasten or come quickly to me. There is a wealth... Of wisdom in that request. Hasten or come quickly to me. David doesn't ask God to give something to him. He doesn't even ask God, at least initially, to do something for him. He knows that in the hour of temptation, there is one thing and one thing only that he needs more than anything else. And that is the life-changing power of the presence of God. That's where he starts. And on this side of of Christ's death and resurrection, we we look back on those events in a way that David could only look forward. And, And because we look back, we live on this side of Christ's death and resurrection. We enjoy, if you're among the people of God, if Jesus is your savior, we enjoy a spiritual blessing that King David did not. What's that? The indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. It's a tremendous blessing christian he he dwells god himself no longer dwells in a physical temple he doesn't live in this building he lives in the hearts of his people you are a temple of the living god when you trust jesus as your savior in the way victor described you become god's living house and guess what? He never goes on vacation. <laughs> he doesn't leave on your bad days or come back on your good days. He remains Emmanuel. God with us, and he is our ever-present help in time of trouble. And in that sense, that the reality of God's presence in us never changes but hear this our awareness and experience of his presence does so in the hour of temptation we when we pray with David oh lord I call upon you hasten to me we're not asking God to come back from a vacation at the lake We're simply asking the Lord to reveal more of himself to us, to make his presence known to us that we might encounter him for who he is and respond to him in light of who he is. That's how the gospel living on this side of the cross changes that prayer. But I don't think that kind of prayer, Lord, hasten to me, is our default in the hour of temptation. I mentioned that earlier. We, we default to asking God to do things for us. Which is a necessary request. And we're going to get to that shortly. But, but we must not start there, friends. Because that's not our greatest need. Our greatest need is to come face to face with God himself. Because it's through experiencing God and encountering God. Not, not just knowing things about God that we're changed. Please hear that. Knowing things about God will never, ever change you. Experiencing God and encountering God in light and informed by all the things you know about God will change you. There's a difference. Because God isn't just a cosmic power, He's a person. He's a person, and, and though we don't yet see him with our physical eyes, he is just as real as the person who is sitting next to you right now. Okay, he is infinitely transcendent. But if the songs of lament teach us anything about God, they teach us that he's also deeply personal, deeply imminent, which is why we can do things like what? Call out to him. Ask him to draw near to us. Ask him to listen to our voice and be be pleased with our prayers. You don't make requests like that to divine ideas or cosmic powers. You make requests like that to real people. God's a real person. We have to remember that. Because if we forget that, everything goes wrong when it comes to the way we relate to him. He's a person. And we need to realize, friends, that that even the smallest glimpse of His glory—I mean, this, this, the smallest glimpse of His goodness—if if you and I can just see the teeniest little bit of the majesty and power of God, it will shatter the power of sin. He's that great. Is that glorious? In, in the hour of temptation, your greatest need, and therefore our first prayer, must be Lord, draw near to me. Because the only way you will ever be able to persist in resisting temptation and saying no to sin is if you know who it is you are saying yes to in choosing to follow the Lord. You know, well, so well does John, Pastor John Piper always say, we we have to fight the pleasure of sin with a superior pleasure in god that that's what david's getting at when he says lord i'm suffering under temptation to sin request number 1 draw near to me help me to see you help me to behold you such that in light of your glory i see the pleasure of sin for what it really is a banquet in the grave So in the hour of temptation, friend, take care that you pray more than anything else. Lord, draw near to me. Hasten to me as I meditate on your word. Hasten to me as I linger with you, talk with you in prayer. Hasten to me as I worship you with your people. I love your gifts. I need your gifts. But more than any of your gifts, I need you. Remember that. Temptation to sin is an invitation to pray. Prayer number one, Father, draw near to me. Here's the second prayer. Point number two, Father, protect me draw near to me, protect me. Let's go back to video games. Speaking of video games, how many of you find a secret pleasure in playing way beneath your skill level? <laughs> Come on, be honest. Yes. You don't, Daniel? Oh, you're too good. All right. Well, Well, I do. So, here's what that means if you're thinking, I have no clue what Matthew's talking about. My phone isn't smart. Don't worry, I'll help you. Um, You set the game on beginner mode, and then you go in and just destroy the place. All right, every bad guy in the building is just a sitting duck. They don't stand a chance. Your shields never even click down one notch, and it is gloriously fun. And you know what? That's precisely who we are in the face of temptation to sin apart from the protecting power of God. We're sitting ducks. We're like all those guys you just go in and take out. We we don't stand a chance against the power of sin left to ourselves, friends. We don't stand a chance. David knows that. And so what does he pray? Look at verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4, he cries out for God to protect him. To protect him in at least four ways. I'll move through these quickly. First, Lord, guard my words. Verse 3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to sin in what we say with our mouth or, or type with our hands? Anybody ever notice that? You ever notice that it's a lot easier to sin with your mouth or with the typing hands than it is in some respects with your, your actions? Um, we, we tend to think a little bit more about our actions. There's something about our, our words and our fingers that it's like thought, speak, thought, type. Thought. It just goes and we're sinning before we know it. Well, it is James 3. Compare our tongue, our words, to the bridle of a horse, the rudder of a ship, a small fire in a forest. Our words have the power to tear down and destroy, and our words have power to build up and to heal. James 3, verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So we pray, Lord, guard Our words. Second, guard our desires. Look at the beginning of verse 4. Do not let my heart incline to any evil. Don't let my heart, who I am on the inside, incline to any evil. There is an entire sermon in that phrase. Don't let my heart incline to any evil. But for now, suffice it to say that David recognizes a spiritual reality that's critically important for us to recognize if we are going to respond to the pain of temptation to sin in a way that's pleasing to God. What's the reality? I mentioned it earlier. We don't just do what is wrong. We desire what is wrong. We don't just do what is wrong, we we desire what is wrong. In fact, it's our desires, please hear this church, it's our affections, it's our loves, it's our cravings and passions on the inside that ultimately determine everything we do on the outside. You cannot separate what you want in here from how you live out there. James 4 verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What's James saying? What's the same thing David's saying? Same thing he's saying. Enduring victory against temptation to sin doesn't start with a, a change in your behavior. It starts with a change in your heart. That's what he's saying. So, so to illustrate this, if I am tempted to get impatient with my kids, which I never am. Yeah, right. I am all the time. If I'm tempted to get impatient with my kids, uh, which may tend to happen more often than not the moment that I walk into the door after work, hypothetically speaking, um, I don't just need God to guard my words. I need God to guard my heart. Specifically, I need God to guard my desires, the desires of my heart, from desiring, wanting a peaceful, quiet evening more than I desire to love my children and serve my wife. If this desire, peaceful and quiet evening, must have it, is the greatest desire, if it is sitting, parked, squatted on the throne of my heart, then how am I going to act? What am I going to speak? It's not a mystery. Impatience! From the get-go! I mean, it's not even a contest. It's just impatience is going to pour out. But, but, but if this desire is on the throne of my heart to love my children and serve my wife, and it is my greatest desire and greater than this desire, then what's going to happen? Well, then I'll, grow, I'll be patient. Brothers, we don't grow in patience at home by just trying to take off impatience and put on patience. We we grow when we ask God to guard our heart and change our desires. That's where real change happens. Lord, guard my desires. Third third way he asked God to protect him. Look back at verse 4. Lord, guard my actions. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds. Why, why does David make that request of God? I mean, you, perhaps you're thinking, was well, not that a bit unnecessary in light of what I just said? If our desires determine our actions, why is it not enough to simply pray, Lord, guard my desires? And actions will just take care of themselves. Well, well certainly we need to start there. Our, our desires always influence our actions, but, but listen to this, our actions also influence our desires. It's a 2 way street, okay? In other words, refusing to do what is wrong at the level of your actions will tend to over time diminish your desire for what is wrong. So for example, and notice I said, tend to diminish or weaken, not eliminate. For example, refusing to look at pornography will not make your desire for pornography go away. I'll take the fact that it got very quiet in here just then as a sign that you know that's right. But hear this, the more you choose to do it, the more you want to do it and vice versa. So we need God to guard our desires. But we also need God to guard our actions because they are connected and they influence and affect one another. So we pray, Lord, guard my actions. Okay, here's the final way we need God's protection. Back to verse 4 again. Lord, guard my company. Guard my company. Guard my words. Guard my desires. Guard my actions. Guard my company. Verse 4 do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. What is David saying here? Well, he's saying something that he knows all too well, namely that we become like the company we keep. Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion, company, With fools will suffer harm. And can can we just be honest, folks? We tend to think that we are the sole exception in the universe to that rule. (laughs) I mean, I know it's true. He who walks with the wise grows wise, commanding fools suffers harm, but but then there's some of us. And we're not subject to the rules that affect the masses. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Okay? I mean, it starts off innocently enough. I mean, sure, that sure the guys on the team do some pretty bad things after the game on Friday night, but I mean, that doesn't make them bad people, right? I mean, it's, it's actually pretty fun to hang out with them. They laugh a lot. They don't take themselves so seriously like all my Christian friends mom wants me to hang out with. It's not like I'm doing anything wrong. I know who I really am on the inside. Friend, if that's you, take care. Take care because you are on a slippery slope towards sin. And you are probably, by virtue of the company you love the most, further down that slope than you realize. Uh, well did C.S. Lewis say in the Screwtape Letters, There is a subtle play of looks and tones and laughs by which a mortal can imply that he is of the same party as those to whom he is speaking. He will assume at first only by his manner but presently by his words all sorts of cynical and skeptical attitudes which are not really his but they may become his. All mortals tend to turn into the things they are pretending to be. He's right. We we become like the company we keep. and, And David knows that. And so he prays, Lord, guard me, protect me from the company of those who are not living to fear the Lord. Guard me from delighting in their company, from jumping into wholesale friendship with people of this world who don't fear the Lord and thinking that I can do that and somehow maintain my fear of the Lord. Friend, you cannot. You cannot. So we cry out, Lord, guard my company. Okay, in the hour of temptation, when it's coming your way, we pray, Lord, would you draw near to me? Second, Father, would you protect me? I need you to guard my words. I need you to guard my desires. I need you to guard my deeds. And I need you to guard my company. An Invitation to pray is always side by side with a temptation to sin. Here's the third prayer. Point number three, Father, correct me draw near to me, protect me. Number three, correct me. Look at verse five. Here's where the rubber really meets the road, okay? In verse five, David asked God for something that we rarely like, but desperately need. He asked God for the gift of of correction, look at verse five. Let a righteous man strike me. it is a kindness. let him rebuke me. it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. I read that, and I think, say what I mean when was the last time you felt the pain or were suffering under temptation to sin, and you went before the Lord and say, God, what I want more than anything else right now is for you to send me a faithful brother or sister in Christ who will correct and rebuke me to my face. (laughs) I read that this week and I was humble, church, because I thought when I felt the pain of temptation to sin, I don't think I've ever once proactively prayed for that. That in the same way that God would guard my words, and my desires, and my deeds, and my company, which I have prayed for, but then I would fail to recognize that verse 5 is the divine answer to the prayer in verse 4. Because the chief way, hear this, one of the chief means by which God will guard our words, desires, actions, and company is through the gift of correction, (laughs) from people that doesn't feel good. (laughs) We don't want it to work that way, right? What do we want to do? We want to go away on a mountaintop with Jesus and just come back with everything all tidied up. No problems, no issues. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing great. Smooth sailing, I mean, things were really bad earlier this year, but you picked a great time to ask me because there was that day when God changed my heart and I am fine. How are you? Oh, that feels a lot better. I mean, are there times God protects us from sin without involving anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, all the time. Okay? But, but, but even a cursory reading of the book of Proverbs or, or just the whole Bible for that matter reveals that one of the Lord's favorite means of protecting us is correction and rebuke from fellow Christians. Now, did I just give all of y'all a license to go out and make the majority of your verbal and written communication with every other follower of Christ words of correction and rebuke? No! Okay? I did not. It shouldn't be the majority But there are many times and typically more than most of us would prefer, hear that, where love requires that we gently but firmly show one another where we have either stumbled into sin or are about to stumble into sin. And guess what? As a pastor, I need you to do that for me. And I charge you to do that for me. Because we know what happens when it does not. We, we need to remember. If you've been a member of Kingsway a long time, please listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. This is for you in a particular way. We need to remember that the biblical response to a culture of legalism, where we are subtly or not so subtly pressuring people to conform to our convictions on disputable matters. Tracking with me? Is not a response of cultural liberty where we never, ever correct or rebuke or admonish or warn or exhort one another because we're trying to protect the relationship. Do you follow that? This is not the biblical response to that. These are both deadly. Neither one of those is the gospel. What's the gospel? That in love, I will speak the truth to you. Because in love, Jesus Christ has spoken the truth to me. That's the gospel. And if you see me trapped in sin or running towards sin and you recognize it and don't speak up, you are failing to love me. At best, your silence, well, I'll start with at worst. At worst, your silence is an expression of hatred toward me. At best, your silence is a decision to value your temporal comfort over my eternal good. Don't. Do that, church. And don't you dare do that to me. Because I'm a marked man. If the Lord can bring me down, it does not go well for the church. So please correct me. And pray to God in your hour of temptation that when he answers your request in verse 4, with a word of correction in verse 5 from a person that you might not initially think is remotely qualified to bring it, that you too will pray, God, let my head not refuse it. Oh. I got to point out one other thing in verse 5. Do you see where David says, Let a righteous man strike me? It is a kindness. Do you know that word we translate kindness? Is the very same word found all over the Bible that is translated steadfast love or loyal love in reference to God Himself? What is David saying? He's saying that when a righteous man strikes me, that is an expression of the love of God himself for me. That's profound. As Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A temptation to sin is an invitation to pray. Lord, draw near to me, protect me, correct me, and fourth, we'll move faster through these last two, vindicate me. Vindicate me. Vindicate me. Suffice it to say, in the hour of temptation... Uh, we all have a choice to make. Are are we going to jump in with the deeds of the wicked or are we going to pray against the deeds of the wicked? Are we for sin or are we against sin? And and our response to temptation in every case really comes down to this. Where does your spiritual loyalty lie? Is it with the kingdom of God or with the kingdom of darkness? And David resolves in verses 6 and 7, look there, to align himself with the Lord by praying against... The evil deeds that were being committed all around him. And his prayer essentially takes this form in verses 6 and 7. Lord, vindicate the righteous. Vindicate the righteous. Okay, that's a cry we we hear over and over again in the Psalms of Lament. And verses 6 and 7 are, truth be told, very difficult to translate into English. They're very difficult. But here's the basic idea. Lord, would you judge the leaders of the wicked so that all who have followed them in running toward temptation will recognize the error of their ways. It's as if David says, I know their end. The end of their present path is death. I've said as much to them before, but they have not had ears to hear. So, Lord, would you bring them to the point where they recognize the error of their ways? Would you give them spiritual insight such that their own mouth vindicates the truth or the pleasantness of my words? If, if that takes them seeing their friends be punished for their sin, so be it. Lord, whatever you have to do, grant them the gift of repentance. Enable them to say with a genuinely contrite spirit. And I think the the New American Standard is helpful here with verse 7. As when one plows and breaks open the earth, our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Open their eyes to see the folly of their ways and the truth of what I have said to them all along. And David's confidence He's confident in praying that prayer that a day of vindication is coming, a day when the Lord will vindicate the righteous by confirming the truth and beauty of the words we speak. What are those words, friend? What are these pleasant words in verse 6 for us? What's the words of the gospel? It's the truth of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and the difference that makes in every area of life. Those are the words. And there are times that God vindicates the truth of the gospel that we speak, In this life. How does he do that? When a man like Victor comes up and speaks. The truth of the gospel is vindicated. And there are times when a family member or friend. That that you have shared the gospel with. The good news of salvation in Christ with. Over and over and over again. And they've just laughed in your face for years. And then one day. They break. And that hardness of heart, as I watched with my brother David, just comes crashing down. God says, let there be light. And suddenly they are proclaiming the very words and truth that they used to disdain. That happens sometimes in this life, many times in this life, and God is gloriously vindicated. But but there are other situations, friends, where we have to wait for the final day of judgment, for our words, the word of the gospel, to be vindicated. On that day, every knee will bow, whether they want to or not, and every tongue will confess, whether they like it or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord. But whether our vindication comes in this life or the life to come, one thing we know with David, our vindication is sure. And so the fourth prayer we pray along with David is this. Lord, deliver us from temptation to sin so that we have the necessary moral integrity to speak the truth of the gospel until you vindicate the truth of the gospel. Lord, vindicate me. Here's the final prayer. Look at verse eight through 10. Father, preserve me. Preserve me. Look at these verses, friend. You know, in many ways, David's prayer here at the very end, it it just captures everything he's already asked for. My eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. and you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Do you know at its core what every temptation to sin is? Think about that. At its core, its root, what is every temptation to sin? Every temptation to sin is an invitation for you to find refuge in something or someone other than God. That's what it is. It's an invitation to seek refuge, fulfillment, security, happiness, identity, and joy in someone or something other than the Lord. It's what the prophet Jeremiah called a broken cistern that holds no water. It's a false promise. It, it doesn't deliver as advertised. And yet, even though we know that, we're still so gullible. I mean, Think about this. Where, where do we tend to seek refuge when we're suffering under temptation to sin? Well, what do we do? Well, We try to take the edge off the fight with the immediate gratification of, of sex or alcohol. We we try to compensate for repeated failures in one area of the battle by throwing ourselves into another area of the battle and and that may be our secular work, that may be our service in the church. Or sometimes we simply redouble our efforts at self-discipline or self-improvement. There are countless ways, countless ways that we arrogantly try to save ourselves Instead of humbly trusting God to save us. And if like me that's your battle. Then hear this brothers and sisters. There's only one sure refuge in the hour of temptation. One sure refuge. It's the Lord our God. Notice in verse 8. Look very carefully there. David does not say. But my eyes are toward you O God. What's he say? My eyes are toward you, O oh God, my Lord. Friend, if you're a Christian, God isn't just God, He's your Lord. He's your Lord by virtue of creating you, and He's your Lord by virtue of redeeming you. You are twice owned by the Lord. You're His, He's your master, and He is your only Savior. No one else can deliver you like he can and no one else can save you like he will. So why? Why would you run anywhere else for refuge when temptation is coming your way except that God Because your Lord? He's your only hope and he's the only hope you need. He he will be able to keep you from the trap of sin. He will be able to deliver you from the snares of the evil one. He's, He's able to keep you safe. But you have to look to him. You have to seek him. My eyes are toward you. That's a choice David's making. In you, I seek refuge. That's a choice David's making. God will not hear this. God will not rescue you against your will. But he is able to radically and supernaturally change your will so that you hunger and thirst for his salvation. As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, And God is faithful. You know why that's one of my favorite verses? Because my dad beat that into me for years and years when I was growing up. And is he away, Mom? He's working. Shocking. Lord, sustain him. But every time I would come to him, Dad, this is hard. Dad, this is, you know, Pain of temptation, pain of struggle. He would just quietly pause. It's only my dad can do. Son, it's like, I know what's coming. God is faithful, son. God is faithful, son. I can hear those words. All he's eating is oatmeal. God is faithful, son. And he will not let you be tempted, Matthew beyond your ability. But with the temptation, something else comes. What's that? The way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know what part of that way of escape is? It's the way of lament. It's the entire psalm we've been studying this morning. That's part of God's way of escape. Every temptation, friend, to sin is an invitation to pray. And so in your hour of temptation this week, I exhort you To join the saints of old in praying what Jesus himself commanded us to pray Our Father in heaven, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Would you draw near to me? Would you protect me? Would you correct me? Would you vindicate me? Would you preserve me for the glory of your name? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that when the pain of temptation to sin is at its greatest, you do not tell us to check back in when we have real suffering to bring to you. I thank you that when our suffering and the pain we experience is in a major way our fault, like temptation is... To-